Church family, I invite you to open up in God's Word to Genesis chapter 32 and 33. Our text for today is Genesis chapter 32 verse 1 through chapter 33 verse 20. These two chapters in this book of beginnings, the book of Genesis. Um, We're going to read from God's Word. The title of our message is God's Faithfulness Through Submission. Um, It is good for us to just to sit and listen. Hear God's word. Hear God speak to us. It's actually one of the things um, that, uh, that God has charged pastors with. One of the role of pastors is not just to preach, but specifically, these words are given, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture. So one of the roles of the pastor is just simply to read, and uh, which means, here's what that means, it means it's good for all of us to just hear God's Word, just sit and listen to God's Word. So you sit and listen, or you follow along in your copy as we read from the Word of God. Beginning in chapter 32 of Genesis, Jacob went on his way, and the angels of God met him, and when Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. So he called the name of that place Mahanaim. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom, instructing them, Thus you shall say to my lord Esau, Thus says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male servants, and female servants. I have sent to tell my lord in order that I might find favor in your sight. The messengers returned to Jacob, saying, We came to your brother Esau, and he is coming to meet you, and there are four hundred men with him. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. He divided the people who were with him and the flocks and herds and camels into two camps, thinking, if Esau comes to the one camp and attacks it, then the camp that is left will escape. And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant. For with only my staff I have crossed this Jordan and now have become two camps. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, that he may come and attack me, the mothers with the children. But you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for a multitude. So he stayed there that night, and from what he had with him, he took a present for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milking camels and their calves, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys. These he handed over to his servants. Every drove by itself and said to his servants, pass on ahead of me and put a space between drove and drove. He instructed the first, when Esau my brother meets you and asks, to whom do you belong? Where are you going? And whose are these ahead of you? Then you shall say, they belong to your servant, Jacob. They are a present sent to my Lord Esau. And moreover, he is behind us. He likewise instructed the second and the third and all who followed the droves. You shall say the same thing to Esau when you find him, and you shall say, Moreover, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he thought, I may appease him with the present that goes ahead of me, and afterward I shall see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So the present passed on ahead of him, and he himself stayed that night in the camp. The same night he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He he took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. 
When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel and the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near to his brother. But Esau ran to meet him and embraced him and fell on his neck and kissed him, and they wept. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and children, he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near, and they bowed down. Esau said, What do you mean by all this company that I met? Jacob answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, please, if I have found favor in your sight, then accept my present from my hand. For I have seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God, and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you, because God has dealt graciously with me, and because I have enough. Thus he urged him, and he took it. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. But Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children, until I come to my Lord and Seir. So Esau said, Let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But he said, What need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir. But Jacob journeyed to Sukkoth and built himself a house and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of that place is called Sukkoth. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. And he camped before the city. And from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought, a hundred, bought for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land on which he had pitched his tent. There he erected an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. This is the word of the Lord for his church today. Perhaps one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life for us to learn, church, is this it's the principle of submission. It's the principle of submission. Let me illustrate. How many of you just absolutely love saying the following things? I can't do it. Or how about this one? I need help. Or how about this one? I'm not strong enough. Or how about this one? I'm so weak. I can't protect myself. I need you. Now, how many of you love saying things like that? Probably none of us. Maybe I'm the only one, but I do not 
like saying things like that. Why is that? It's because none of us likes to admit helplessness and weakness and neediness. No one, none of us just naturally jumps at the opportunity to submit ourselves under the authority and the power of someone else who we admit is stronger than us whom we need. We like to think that we can handle it. We like to think that we're strong enough and skilled enough and in control enough. Maybe you've, maybe you've been there where you're trying to maybe move something heavy and you just don't want to ask anybody to help you. And then what, what happens? You end up dropping it, breaking it, getting hurt. And you go, man, I wish I had just admitted that I needed help and I, and I couldn't do this on my own. We like to think that we can handle things. But at the heart, church, of a relationship with God is the call to submit to lay down our lives, to have our neediness exposed before God, to declare our weakness before Him, and to, and to plead for His mercy and His deliverance. Church, we serve a God who is faithful to provide for us a merciful deliverance. He is faithful to give us the deliverance and the help that we need. But here's the thing. God delivers us not through our prideful refusal to admit our need for Him, but through our humble admission that we need Him and that we are helpless apart from Him. It's through submission to God that we are able to experience God's hand of deliverance in our lives. You can put it this way. It's by admitting that we can't do it, that we, we submit, that we actually win. It's the opposite of what we might would think in our human and sinful hearts and minds. And thankfully, God is kind enough to remind us of our need to submit under his authority and power and care. In Genesis chapter 32, verse 33, we learn this, church, that through reminders of submission, God faithfully delivers his people. Through reminders of submission, God faithfully delivers his people. Now, at this point in the book of Genesis, God's promise of an offspring, we know who eventually we know to be Jesus, that's going to lead to worldwide blessing, has been passed from Abraham to his son Isaac, now to his son Jacob. Jacob deceived his older brother Esau. Remember that? He, he deceived him out of the family uh, blessing and learned then that Esau wanted to kill him. And so Jacob flees to another, uh, another country, to his extended family, in order to escape the wrath and the anger of his brother who wants to kill him. And we've spent some time talking about the fact that he needed a wife and how all of that panned out. And now he not only has one, but two plus some they're servants, and, and we've, we've dove into that mess um, a, a good bit. So we're not going to revisit that right now. But Jacob ended up spending 20 years in the house of his uncle Laban. And through those 20 years, during those 20 years, God taught Jacob some important lessons. And if you think about it, all of these lessons that he's been teaching Jacob over this course of this 20 years, they all tie, I believe, back to the faithfulness of God in the life of Jacob. Just, just as a way of reminder, we've seen Jacob learn that through moments of discipline, God faithfully preserves his people. That through scenes of brokenness, God is faithful to build up his people. And through scenes of hardship, God faithfully sustains his people. But there's one more lesson that Jacob needs to learn. Perhaps it's a lesson that we need to learn today, or at least be reminded of. It's a lesson that he needed to, to, to know and to learn and be reminded of as he heads back into this land of promise, into the land of Canaan, and that is the lesson of submission. And what is the opportunity that God uses? 
It's him having to face his brother. It's been in the back of his mind. It's been in the back of our minds for several chapters now. But we've known eventually he's got to come back to the land. And he's going to face his brother. The last time Jacob saw his brother, Esau was plotting his murder. Esau was scheming and desiring to kill Jacob. And now Jacob must face the one he deceived and robbed. To... Words probably don't put it justice. The emotions and the anguish and the turmoil that, that he's feeling inside of him. Not Esau, but, but Jacob at this point. He's nervous, to say the least. He's scared. He, he is fearful. He is greatly afraid, the text says. He is distressed. I mean, his stomach is just in knots. His heart's pounding. He's probably not sleeping well because he knows he's getting ready to come face to face with the one whom he has deceived and who, last he heard, wants to murder him. Jacob is in need of God's deliverance, which means, note this, he's also in a place where he has a great opportunity to learn submission to God. In the midst of the fear and the anxiety and the nervousness and, 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 and not knowing what is ahead, he is in a great position to learn what it means to submit to the Lord. Now, thankfully, God has been working on Jacob. God's been growing Jacob's faith. We've seen that. And by God's grace, Jacob is ready to learn this lesson of submission as God reminds him that he is helpless apart from God. And church, the same is true for us. As we face temptations and doubts and past guilt in a hostile world that seeks to derail our faith, all of those things could come in and derail our faith in the Lord. As we face those things, we must walk in daily submission to the Lord. We must live and surrender to the lordship of Jesus. We must humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Church, as we see God graciously remind Jacob of his need to humbly live in submission to God, let's allow these reminders, I pray, to lead us, to lead you, to lead me into a greater level of submission to our God. Remember, when you submit, you win. When you submit, you win. It's good for us. I want to share with you four reminders of our position of submission in this passage today. Reminder number one is this, church. We are in constant need of God's powerful presence. We are in constant need of God's powerful presence. Now, in the previous chapter, we saw Jacob acknowledge this. We saw Jacob acknowledge that God had been with him. Remember, he said, if God had not been with me, if God had not been with me, Jacob acknowledged that it was 100% a result of God's presence that he was able to survive those incredibly difficult years, the past 20 years. But listen, it's easy for us to forget our need for God's presence. It's easy for us to start trusting in our own ability. Or perhaps it's easy for us to, even in a, in a moment of distress, to forget that God is still there. And so as soon as Laban heads back home at the end of chapter 31 and Jacob heads on his way into the land of Canaan, God reminds Jacob, you're not alone. Chapter 32 verse 1 tells us that the angels of God met him. Now isn't it interesting that on his way out of the land of Canaan, the angels of God were ascending and de descending on the staircase that reached from heaven to earth. You remember that? Several weeks ago, we, we talked about that as he's heading out of the land of Canaan. And now as he's heading back into the land of Canaan, God allows him to see 
his angels, the angels of God, again. Now, we don't have much information at all about this angelic encounter. We can, we can let our imaginations run wild, or we can just say, let's just stick with what the text sa- says and tells us. And we don't, we don't have lots of information about what this looked like. All we have is this statement, the angels of God met him. But we also have Jacob's response in verse 2. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And so he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Now, the, the Hebrew name Mahanaim means two camps. Two camps. So what's the point here in this very brief two verses seeing this camp of angels, this, this host of angels, this army, if you will, of angels? The point is that God's powerful presence was with Jacob, and it was a powerful presence that Jacob needed. And he needed to admit that he needed it. Jacob's faith in God had been growing. It had grown greatly over the past 20 years. But friends, we never outgrow our need for God's powerful presence in our lives. Jacob needed God's presence and Paddan Aram to sustain him through those 20 years. And you better believe he was going to need God's presence in the land of Canaan as he returned to his home. The reality is for us is that we always live in the need of God's powerful presence in our lives. God wants Jacob to walk in relationship with him, which means God wants Jacob to submit to him. That's the only way we can walk in close relationship to the Lord is if we're walking in submission to him. And one aspect of walking in submission to God is being constantly aware of our need for God's powerful presence. We don't like to admit it. Remember those phrases that I said earlier? We don't, we don't want to admit we need somebody's presence in our lives to help us. But it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, you constantly need Every day, God's powerful presence in your life. You need his presence daily to fight temptation in your life. You need his presence daily to help you pursue holiness instead of sinfulness. You need his presence daily to encourage you whenever the going gets tough in life, whenever you face those hardships and trials of life. You need his presence daily to help you boldly declare the good news of Jesus and to live for the glory of Jesus in this world which would seek to draw us away from Jesus. You need his presence daily to help you step out in faith whenever God calls you to do hard things as an ambassador of Christ. Friends, I need God's presence daily in my life. But it's so easy to to walk not admitting that. Just to wake up in the morning and think, I got this. I can do this. Now, we don't wake up necessarily and say that, but we live that way. We're so prone to forget our neediness for the presence of God in our lives. Oh, that we would wake up in the morning and the first words out of our mouth be, God, I need you, desperately need you today. More than I've ever needed you in my life today, I need you. And tomorrow to wake up and say the exact same thing. Jacob knew that he had to return to the land of promise, but he also knew there was a really good chance that Esau was waiting to kill him when he got there. Jacob needed reassuring, and so God graciously opens Jacob's eyes here and let him see that he was not alone. A camp of God's angels was there. And we know that it had a great impact on Jacob because he gave that place a new name. Anytime we see in Scripture a person or a place given a new name, it's a textual clue that 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 event that led to that is a significant event. Something important happened. Jacob saw God's camp of angels. He named the place two camps. Two camps. His camp was there. He thought it was just him. But then his eyes were opened and he said, it's not just me. There's two camps here. I'm not alone. God is here with me. 
He needed this reminder that he was constantly in need of God's powerful presence so he would walk in submission to God, trusting in his powerful presence to help him, to fight for him, to protect him. Remember, he's going to face somebody who, for all he knows, is ready to kill him. He needs to know God is with him. He needs to know that he's helpless apart from God's powerful presence with him. And brothers and sisters, whatever God is calling you to, whatever the next step is in your life as a follower of Jesus, know this, you need the presence of God to help you take that next step. Whatever it is, whatever he's calling you to do today, whatever sin he's calling you to lay down, whatever act of obedience he's calling you to, you need his help. I need his help. We need his powerful presence. Consider just these first two verses of Genesis chapter 32 as God's gracious reminder That we are in constant need of God's powerful presence. It's a reminder of submission. So then we move along in the story. By the way, let me tell you this. We're going to pretty much spend our time in chapter 32 today. So if you think, goodness, we're still in chapter 32 in just a few minutes. That's a a part of the plan. okay? Because what we'll see is that what happens in chapter 32 means that chapter 33 just kind of takes care of itself. Okay, and so just I meant to say that at the beginning, but as we're walking through, you'll see we'll spend most of our time in chapter 32. So we we move along the story with a reminder that God was with him. Jacob, then he takes his next step and his next step is taking a step toward his brother who he thinks is going to want to kill him. He knows he's wronged his brother. He assumes his brother is angry, angry with him. So he sends some messengers on ahead with a message of, of basically, I'm your servant. That's a, pretty good, that's a pretty good start if you're trying to um, find favor with someone who wants to kill you. If you send a message on that says, Jacob is your servant. He's calling you Lord. He's going to come bow down to you, and, and he'll serve you. He's, coming, he's not coming with arms. He's not coming to fight you. He is coming to submit to you. And so he sends those servants on with that message. He wants Esau to know that he is seeking peace that he's desiring Esau's forgiveness in his life. Now the messengers return, and you got to put yourself in, in Jacob's shoes for a moment. The message, so they've gone with this message, they return. What, did, what would Jacob be expecting, or at least hoping for? He would be hoping to hear this, oh Jacob, you, you won't believe it, but Esau said he's so happy that you're on his way to meet you. He, he doesn't have an army with him, um, he's just out there, and he's just, he's just so ready to see you, and, um, and you know, he said, go ahead and give you a hug in advance. That's what Jacob wants to hear, but here's all he hears from the messengers. Yeah, Esau's out there, he's coming to meet you, and there's 400 men with him. Not what you want to hear from the person who last time you heard wants to kill you, Okay? That's not what you want to hear. He doesn't even have any words for him, right? It's just, there's, there's 400 men with him, and he's on his way to meet you. And it's then that Jacob pours out his heart in prayer to God. He divides his, his camp into two camps, says maybe, you know, if they attack half of us, they, the other half can escape. And then he just does the only thing that he knows to do, which is the best thing that he can do. He runs to the Lord, and he cries out in an act of submission. And we find a couple more reminders of submission in his plea. Reminder number two is this, church. We are completely unworthy of God's faithful love. We are completely unworthy of God's faithful love. Church, one of the best motivations for living in complete submission to God is remembering our unworthiness. It's remembering our unworthiness. It's the first thing Jacob declares as he cries out to God. Now, he doesn't start off with asking God to help him. In his prayer, Jacob starts off by reflecting on God's 
grace in his life. He reflects on God's faithfulness and his, Jacob's, unworthiness of God's faithful love. Look at verse 9. He says, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Jacob, O Lord who said to me, return to your country and to your kindred that I may do you good. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. For with only my staff I cross this Jordan. Now I have become two camps. And Jacob calls out to the God of his grandfather, the God of his father. He reminds God of his instructions. God, you told me to come back to this land. But then he reminds him of his good promise. And we'll talk about that again in a moment. And then Jacob does something that's so hard for us to do. He expresses his unworthiness. He expresses his unworthiness. Jacob thinks back over the past 20 years. Do you remember how he, how he entered the land of Paddan Aram, when he left the land of Canaan, running for his life, and he entered Laban's household. Do you remember, do you remember all that he had with him? It's a trick question. He had nothing. He had nothing. All he had was the sandals on his feet and the, the clothes on his back, and he was running for his life. All he had with him was a reputation of being a deceiver. The name of being a cheat. Of having robbed his brother. That's all he had. That's who he was. He was a deceiver with nothing else. And now as he enters back into the land of Canaan 20 years later, he looks around him and and he sees this large family, which we've already talked about, did not happen in the way that should have happened, but God was gracious to him. He sees this offspring that he has, a part of God's promise in sending an offspring. He sees this, and, and, and in that moment, he's humbled. Even in the fact that he has so much that now he's able to divide it into two different camps. He's able to put half of them over here and half of them. He has so much that he's able to split them in half. And hopefully one's going to escape if the other is attacked by Esau. And this is his thought. I'm not worthy. The only way this has happened is because God has shown steadfast love and faithfulness to me. And I am not worthy of the least, of the smallest bit of God's graciousness in my life. I am not worthy of it. And it's all undeserved. Christian, if we want to walk in submission, and remember, submission means winning. To submit means to win. It means deliverance. If we want to walk in submission, we must remain very much aware of how unworthy we are of God's faithful love in our lives. In fact, we ought to be growing. I think the mark of a a growing Christian is a growing sense of awareness of how unworthy we are. Let me ask you some questions here. When was the last time you reflected on the depths of your sin? Just spent some time to think about the depths of your sin. I don't just mean how many sins, but just the, but the depths of them, how much they are an affront to a holy God. When was the last time you thought about who you were before God saved you? For some of you, you may not have to think back very far because it hasn't been very long since you've trusted in Christ. For others of you, you've, you've been walking with Jesus for a long time. When was the last time you stopped and thought about who you were apart from the Lord Jesus Christ saving you? When was the last time, church, you reflected on seasons of your life where God was very, very patient with you as you struggled with sin? 
When was the last time you thought back to those seasons where, man, it was just a daily grind of trying to say no to temptation and say yes to the holiness of God. And you thought back and thought, man, how faithful and patient God was to me during that season of life where I struggled hard against that temptation. When was the last time, then, let's go to salvation, that you pondered who you are now in Christ? When was the last time you meditated upon all that is yours in Jesus Christ? Listen, every Christian story is a story of rags to riches. Now, it has nothing to do with our material wealth before and after we trust in Christ. It has to do with the poverty of our souls apart from Jesus and the riches of the grace of God towards us in Christ. When was the last time we considered our story of rags to riches. We all come into this world dressed in filthy rags, the Bible says, the filthiness of our sin. But everyone who receives God's free gift of salvation has those rags turned into the riches of Christ forever and ever and ever. We were citizens of the kingdom of darkness, but now we've been transferred into the kingdom of light. We were dead in sin, but through Jesus we are now made alive in Christ. We were objects of God's wrath, but now we are seated in the heavenly places. We go from the filthiness of our sin to being clothed with the righteousness of Christ. We had hell as our destiny, church, but... But, but now we have the riches of Christ for endless ages. Now, how did that happen? Did it happen because something you, you did at some point in your life? Did God say, you know what? I'm so proud of you. I knew you were going to do it one day. I knew you were going to be worthy enough and you've reached that point in your life. You, you, have, you have done enough good and you're now worthy of me to, to save you. Is that, is that how it happened? Oh. Not at all, church. Romans chapter 5, verse 8 says, God shows His love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not after we had cleaned up our act, not after we had become worthy, but while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God was faithfully loving us in the midst of our sin. We were unworthy then in church. We're unworthy now. Brothers and sisters, the more we grow in our awareness of the depth of our sin, the blessing that we now have in Christ, the more we realize just how unworthy we are to be recipients of God's faithful, steadfast love. Church, it's spiritually healthy for you. It's spiritually healthy for me. When we take time to think about the fact that our story of rags to riches, so spiritual rags to spiritual riches, is completely a work of God's grace in our lives. And because then we, we begin more, become more and more aware of how completely unworthy we are of God loving us at all, much less to send His only Son to sacrifice His life for people who were in rebellion against Him. Consider for a moment the Apostle Paul. Uh, let's look at his example for just a moment. The Apostle Paul, we, we, we think about, I don't know what you think about when you think about the Apostle Paul. I know what I think about, doing great things for God. I mean, just doing some incredible things for God. Walking close to God. Walking, walking with his master and, and God using him. Obviously, a lot of suffering in his life. But man, just leaving a legacy of what it looks like to follow Jesus. You know one of the things that marked out Paul's life? He was quick to admit that he was unworthy. Notice, notice how in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, he describes himself to the Ephesians. This is the Apostle Paul here. He says, I am the least of all the saints. Consider how he describes himself to Timothy. 
I mean, he, this Timothy was like his, 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 his youngin in the faith, so to speak, right? It's his child in the faith. And it would be easy for Paul to kind of act a little, a little proud. I mean, all right, Timothy, you, look, uh, you, you do what I do. You follow me as I follow Christ. Now, he said that. But what was his attitude as he said that? 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, Paul describes himself to his student as the foremost of sinners. Paul describes himself this way. He says, the reason that I belong to God, Timothy, is because the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. What a mouthful of God's grace and God's work and our unworthiness. God did it all. That's the reason, Timothy, not because I'm a great preacher, not because I've gone to all these countries and shared the gospel with people, not, not because I've written parts of the New Testament, not, not because of any of that. I am who I am in Christ because God's grace has overflowed, overflowed in my life for me. Paul knew he was unworthy of God's faithful love. And church, that's one of the reasons he was able to walk in submission to God. Listen, if you're struggling to walk in submission to God today, perhaps you need to reflect on God's faithful love in your life and how unworthy you are of it. It's actually healthy when we do that. So we're constantly in need of God's powerful presence. We're completely unworthy of God's faithful love. Now, reminder number three, and I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this one, but reminder number three of our position of submission is this, church. It's important. It's important. We are wholly dependent upon God's certain promise. We are wholly dependent, entirely dependent upon God's certain promise. After Jacob expresses his unworthiness of God's faithfulness, he pleads with God for deliverance. Here comes the plea, right? Here's where he, he has he is, said, all right, God is with me. I'm not alone. I am completely unworthy of God's goodness in my life. Now it's time for me to say, God, I need you. Verse 11, please deliver me. Here's the cry of deliverance. Please deliver me from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him that he may come attack me. And the mothers with the children, he admits that he's scared of Esau. He pleads with God to deliver him, to rescue him and his family from his brother. But I want you to notice, it's important for us to pay attention, not only that he pleads for deliverance, but notice the basis on which he makes his request for deliverance. Look at verse 12. It's very important. But you said, now Jacob is still talking. He's still praying. And he prays to God this, but you said, I will surely do you good and make your offspring as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. What is Jacob saying to God? He's repeating back to God God's promise that he made to Jacob. He's just repeating back to God what God had promised to him. Jacob is basing his request for God's deliverance not on anything that Jacob has done, but on God's promise to be with him, watch over him, and to bring him safely back into the land of promise, into the land of Canaan, along with making his offspring as numerous as the sand of the sea, the stars of the sky, the dust of the earth. We've seen all of those phrases in Genesis. Jacob is basically saying this, God, God, I need you. I need you, God. Please deliver me from Esau. If you don't deliver me, God, if you don't deliver me and my family, God, you'll be breaking your promise. And right now, God, my only hope is that you are a trustworthy God. My only hope right now, God, is that you're a God who keeps your word. And so I'm going to remind you, God, of what you promised to me. 
And then I'm going to cast myself in complete dependence upon you being a trustworthy God that you're going to keep your word. God, that's my only hope right now is that I can trust you and your promises. Church, that is a position of submission. It's a rightful position for followers of Jesus to live in. Our only hope for salvation, church, is that God keeps His promise, that He keeps His promise to save everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. Church, that He keeps His promise to accept us on the basis of Jesus' death in our place and His exchange of our sin for His righteousness. That is our only hope when we stand before the Lord, that God's going to keep His promise, that He will see Jesus instead of seeing us. Because Jesus shed His blood in our place. Our only hope is that Jesus keeps His promise that He's going to return one day and He's going to take us to that place that He has prepared for us. It's called faith. This is why the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. What do we do to be saved? We say, God, I can't do it and I'm going to depend completely on You. I'm going to trust completely in Your promise. That is my only hope, church. I pray it is your only hope. If you follow Christ today, it is your only hope. Just like Jacob, if God doesn't keep his promise, we are doomed. But God is a promise keeper. He never makes a promise, church, that he doesn't keep. And so we can, we must submit to him by wholly depending upon his certain promise and then walking in that submission each day. Never, never looking to ourselves as the means of our relationship with the Lord, but only depending upon God and his certain promises. Anytime we hear or read or remember God's promises, I know many of you love to think about the promises of God, even read the promises of God. Maybe you even have a, a devotional or something like that that is a reminder, maybe even a daily reminder of God's promises. That's good. Read those promises. But as you read them, let it drive you into a deeper submission to God. As you read those promises, you hear those promises from God's Word, and you say, if not for God's trustworthiness, I would be hopeless. What is our hope in life and death, church? Not anything we've done, but only God's promise to save us through Jesus. And so we're in constant need of God's powerful presence, completely unworthy of God's faithful love, wholly dependent upon God's certain promise. You see the theme here? We are a needy people. We are a needy people. Now, after Jacob prays, he then prepares extravagant gifts for his brother. He's praying, but he's still saying, hey, I'm going to do my part. I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that Jacob, that Esau knows I mean him no harm, and I'm really hoping that he can forgive what I did to him. So he sends all of these gifts ahead of him, hoping, hoping that his anger and resentment will settle down. In the Hebrew text, the word face is used multiple times in verse 20 and 21 of chapter 32. Verse 20 and 21. Now, you don't see it in the English translation because it's used in euphemisms that wouldn't really make sense always if we use the word face. But that word face is used multiple times in those verses and a lot of times throughout this entire passage. Verse 20 and 21. Jacob hopes that Esau's face will be appeased so that when he sees Esau's face, Esau will lift Jacob's face, which means that he'll be accepted. But friends, here's, the, here's, here's what's going on here. Jacob, Jacob is thinking about Esau's face, hoping that he's going to see his face and Esau's going to lift his face and, and they're going to be reconciled. But there's a much more important face that Jacob needs to face before he faces Esau. You tracking with me? There's, some, there's, there's, a whole, there's a whole much more important relationship than his relationship with Esau. And that's his relationship with the Lord. That face provides Jacob with a big reminder of our need to walk in submission to God. And we see him meet that face in the last part of chapter 32. Reminder number four is this. Our final reminder 
Church, we are mercifully delivered by God's transforming touch. We are mercifully delivered by God's transforming touch. Jacob is by himself the night before he meets Esau, and he finds himself in a wrestling match. Now, this is a wrestling match like none other. He finds himself in this wrestling match with a man, and they wrestle all night. It's dark. Okay, we... We're so used to thinking about darkness in 21st century where everything is lit up all the time. They're out out in the middle of nowhere. It's dark. They're having this wrestling match in the dark. He doesn't know who he's wrestling with. All he knows is is he's in this to win. He's going to fight to survive. And Jacob puts up a pretty strong match. The man that he's fighting saw that he was not prevailing against Jacob, at least not with whatever technique he was using at the time. But that's when we learn that this is no mere man that Jacob is fighting. Jacob's opponent reaches out. He doesn't do a suflex, all right? He doesn't, do, doesn't put him in a chokehold. He doesn't, doesn't do a roundhouse kick to the face. He reaches out and he touches Jacob's hip. And what happens? Immediately, his hip is dislocated. Oh, this is no mere man that Jacob is fighting with. And so his hip is out of joint. He keeps fighting at sunrise. The man told Jacob, let me go. But Jacob refused, saying, I'm not going to let you go unless you bless me. There's something in Jacob's mind that knows this this person is powerful. This person has the ability to bless me. And so he he asked for his blessing. He asked Jacob then, what's your name? And Jacob tells the truth. Jacob says, my name is Jacob. Jacob. And, And remember what Jacob means, deceiver. Then the man changed Jacob's name to Israel, which refers to the, uh, that event of, of him striving with God here. Remember, this is no mere mortal man. This name Israel is going to be a constant reminder of that night, all night long, struggling, fighting for survival, and then with a simple touch, having his hip knocked out of joint. Jacob wants to know the man's name, but the man won't tell him his name. That's another sign that this is no mere man, because this man has a holy name. He's not going to utter it. And then Jacob, the man blesses Jacob, apparently disappears. Jacob renames the place Peniel, which means, remember, face, face, face. I'm ready to see Esau's face, and I hope that he's going to lift my face, and I hope his face. And now it says, Jacob renamed the place Peniel. Why? Because I have seen the face of God, and my life has been delivered. We're told that Jacob left with a limp because of his hip being dislocated. Now, what in the world is going on with this encounter between Jacob and God? I think the main point is this. Friends, despite Jacob's strength, he was no match for God. With one touch, God dislocated Jacob's hip and left him with a limp. With a touch, God made very clear to Jacob who was in control. God made very clear to Jacob who the strong one was, who the powerful one was, who was sovereign over that situation. It wasn't Jacob, it was God. If Jacob was going to be delivered from Esau, it was going to be because God showed him mercy and gave him a deliverance that he, remember, was unworthy of. But this wasn't just a touch of dominance, friends. This was a touch of transformation in the life of Jacob. Remember during this wrestling match, Jacob came not only face-to-face with God, but he came face-to-face with his past. He said, Who, what's your name? What's your name? And Jacob in that moment had to admit, cheater. That's my name. That's who I am. Cheater, deceiver. And what did this man, this God, say to Jacob? No longer shall your name be cheater. Now your name shall be Israel. Now your name will be a reminder of this night that you strove with God and prevailed. Not because you were strong, but because God showed you mercy. Now you'll be defined by this event, not your past. 
God gave him this new name where he wouldn't be defined by his past sin, but by his merciful deliverance. Jacob limped away from this encounter, humbled by the fact that God showed him mercy, that he was a sinner. He deserved for God to destroy him in that moment, but God spared his life. God mercifully delivered him. And that was the real deliverance that Jacob needed. More than finding favor with Esau, Jacob needed to find favor with God. More than seeing Esau's face and finding mercy, he needed to see God's face and find mercy in the face of God. And once he did, friends, he was ready to meet Esau. That's why I said earlier, chapter 33, it's just, it's just what happens when Jacob's been delivered by God. Meeting Esau was no big deal at that point. Chapter 33, Jacob goes to meet his brother. Verse 3 tells us that Jacob led the way. Isn't that incredible? Jacob leads the way. He might have been limping, but friends, it was a limp that made him stronger. He may have been overpowered, but when you're overpowered by God, when you walk in submission to God, you can confidently walk wherever God leads, knowing that God has mercifully delivered you and nothing can take that away so he meets Esau man Esau runs up he gives him that hug so excited to see him there's reconciliation between these brothers then he says something interesting in verse 10 of chapter 33 Jacob says this he looks at Esau remember our word face he looks at Esau and he says for I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me what's Jacob saying he's saying that Esau is God is he saying they're equal that's not what he's saying he's saying I already met you last night. I already met you last night. When, when, when I saw you running to me, I already knew that I had been delivered because God had delivered me last night. I met the real one that I needed to be delivered from. I was all worried about meeting you, but it was God that I needed to make sure that I was walking in a right relationship with. For I've seen your face, which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. He meant that his encounter with God where God mercifully delivered him guaranteed that he would be delivered from anyone or anything else that stood between him and the fulfillment of God's promises to him. As long as Jacob was walking in submission to God, Jacob didn't have to fear anything. Because when you submit, you win. When you submit, you win. God had transformed him. He was no longer defined by his past. So we no longer had to walk in fear. God's presence was constant. God's love was faithful. God's promise was certain. And God's touch was transforming in his life. The only thing left for Jacob to do was follow God with a bold faith that came from a humble and submissiveness to the power and authority and mercy of God. Church, deliverance is found in submission. Jacob may have limped into Canaan, but he limped in with God right by his side. The world thinks that submission means weakness. That's why it's hard. It's not just our flesh that battles against submission. It's the world around us. The, the, the world thinks that, that submission means weakness. And in one sense it does. But church, we're never stronger than when we confess our weakness and walk in daily submission to God. You remember what the Apostle Paul said to go back to him for a moment. He said, for when I am weak, then I am strong. Right? Why did he say that? He said that because Jesus had told him this, Paul, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Not God's weakness, but Paul's weakness. His power, the power of God, was made perfect in Paul's weakness. As Paul submitted, he got to experience the power of God's mighty deliverance in his life. The Christian life is a life of paradox, church. When we are weak, then we are strong. We die to ourselves. We find life. We walk in submission. We find that God delivers us. And it's not until we admit our our desperate need for God that we are able to find and receive God's gracious help in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, we need His blood to wash away our sin. 
We need His power to transform our sinful hearts. We need His Spirit to awaken faith inside of us. We are needy, unworthy, dependent people in need of God's transforming touch to give us merciful deliverance. Praise God. Praise God. God gives us just that. And it looks like His Son, Jesus, dying on the cross for our sins and rising up from the grave while we were still sinners. Chapter 33 ends with exactly what God promised. Imagine that. Jacob entering peacefully, the text tells us, into the land of Canaan. Church is a walk of submission that brings us safely into the promised land. It is a walk of submission that carries us into the presence of God. It is a walk of submission that will get us across that river that we long to cross one day into the kingdom of God where we'll live in submission to Him, our merciful God, forever and ever and ever. It is those who submit to Jesus who experience God's deliverance. Church, it's through a blood-bought submission that God brings us peacefully into our heavenly homes. Church, by God's grace, may all of us walk with a limp. May all of us walk with a limp. By God's grace, may we all limp out of here today and may we limp through the rest of our lives as we know that we need God, that we're nothing apart from Him, and that as we submit to Him, we win. It was a limp that made Jacob stronger. It's a limp that makes us stronger as we face the trials the temptations, the doubts of this life. Are you submitted to God today? Would you pray with me? Father, thank you that you are gracious enough to remind us that we need to submit to you. Humble us in this moment, Lord. Remind us that we are never stronger than when we are admitting how weak we are. Father, remind us that when we submit, we win. Humble our hearts before you today, Father. God, we need you. We can't do it without you. Father, if there's someone who hasn't trusted in Christ today, Lord, I pray that they would cry out that they need you to save them because they can't do it themselves. God, for those of us who have trusted in Christ, Lord, may our daily cry be, we need You, God. The only way we will make it into the land of promise is if You are with us. And if You show us grace, if You show us Your mercy, if You are strong when we are weak, that is the cry of Your people today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.